This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, journalist Catherine Belton on Vladimir Putin and his people. If you get a call from the Kremlin uh, saying you have to spend $1 billion or $2 billion on this or that, you have to comply. So in some ways, Putin does own the whole of the Russian economy. When you've been so long in power, uh, trusting your own instincts is a dangerous thing because you acquire hubris, you think you're untouchable. But all these uh, comforts that the Russians have enjoyed over most of Putin's presidency have disappeared or will disappear soon. So, you know, if, if Putin wants to continue to engage in these sort of Soviet era dreams of invading other countries, then uh, at some point you would expect uh, someone to move to replace him. Catherine Belton, welcome to Chatter. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, at this busy time for you to speak with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to chat with you. Thank you. Um, I am a very big fan of your work, and I suspect a lot of listeners of our podcast know it as well. Um, Last year, you published a book called Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took On the West. Um, There Obviously, there are a lot of sort of Putin whispers and watchers out there, but your book did something I thought that was really extraordinary, which is to talk about the role that the intelligence services have played in his life, the people around him who are kind of responsible for his rise and to help explain a lot of who he is. And we'll, and we'll get into all of that in our discussion. Um, one thing I wanted to just start with is, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, uh, in the midst of a, a war, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and events are moving very, very rapidly. So I won't ask you necessarily to comment on anything, you know, terribly current. But I'm really fascinated by where do you think Vladimir Putin is right now? I won't ask you to go inside his head, but it seems by all accounts that he assumed that this war, this invasion would go far easier and more quickly than it has. So what is top of mind for you as a, as a Putin observer and observer of Russia as to where he and the country are right now in this crisis? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think it seems to be uh, clear uh, that the peace process right now is the most important thing. And that's what everyone has to be watching most closely. Um, uh, The talks have been going on almost since the war began. Thankfully, that there has been these channels for dialogue have been kept open, even as Putin has continued the bombardment of Ukrainian cities. And it's been heartening that the, the, the the door has been left open. And it seems that there are positive signals uh, coming out from both sides. And probably what seemed to be most significant was uh, last week when the Kremlin spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, really signaled a a softening, uh, well, hopefully a softening of of some of the terms that Moscow was seeking to impose, which is, is still a lot for somebody like President Zelensky to swallow, particularly when he's been facing such an onslaught from the Russian side. Uh, But Peskov uh, basically signaled that Russia was seeking for Ukraine to accept a neutral status, that it wouldn't join any bloc whatsoever. And he also said uh, Russia wanted recognition of Crimea as Russian territory and recognition of the independence of Lugansk and Donetsk, which is a pretty tall order for uh, Zelensky to swallow, particularly when he's not just got a gun to his head, but there's real bombardment of, of Ukrainian cities 
going on. But it does sound like those talks are making progress. Uh, Zelensky has certainly indicated that he's willing to uh, have neutral status for Ukraine. Uh, the other issues, he said he's open to seeking compromise. I suspect that's going to be difficult because while Peskov said that Russia wasn't seeking any other territory apart from Donetsk, Lugansk and Crimea, the war uh, machine has continued and Russia has continued to try and take other territories. So will it also now seek to establish control over the whole of the Donbass region? We just don't know. So Peskov may say one thing and uh, the outcome may be something c completely different. Obviously, it's very tricky. There's lots of international mediation that's going on. The Israeli prime minister has been involved. The Finnish president has been involved. Uh, Gerhard Schroeder apparently even turned up in Moscow at the weekend to seek to talk to Putin. But uh, the fact that this is happening, we have to be hopeful that the that this can stop. And I think that's to a large degree uh, due to perhaps some pressure from the elite in Moscow who are shocked by what was happened, what has happened. They weren't involved in the decision making, which was clearly taken by Putin alone with a very close uh, coterie of, of insider, very hawkish uh, security service men. They didn't consult with the economic bloc. Uh, they didn't sort of, you know, prepare at all for the full force sanctions that we've seen and it's taken uh, many in Moscow that I've been speaking to completely aback and we're, they're all reeling from the Russia's economic isolation. I find that fascinating too. And I wonder if, I mean, it seems that the sanctions that the US and European countries imposed on the oligarchs, on these elite that are around him, were designed to try to bring some pressure to bear on him. I mean, do you think that that's working? And is that an effective strategy for dealing with Putin? You know, I think, I mean, it works to some degree. Obviously, the, the oligarchs, for instance, like Roman Abramovich or Mikhail Friedman or any of the people who made their money in the Yeltsin era, they're certainly not oligarchs in the traditional sense of the word anymore because in the Yeltsin era, they could basically dictate their will to the Yeltsin government and agreed arrange, arrange the carve-up of assets to themselves that knocked down prices. Some of them even took senior posts in his government. Under Putin, the boot is really now on the other foot. Uh, you know, we've heard Piotr Avin tell Robert Mueller when during the FBI investigation into Russia's inf uh, interference into the US elections in, in 2016, Piotr Avin, when interviewed by Mueller, basically openly said, yes, I meet with Putin. Yes, I get instructions from him. And there are consequences if I don't obey them. I was told uh, during my book reporting by another Russian tycoon that the Kremlin's control over the business and environment over the legal system is, is such that yes they have to obey orders and one of them said if you get a, if I get a call from the Kremlin uh, saying spend one billion or two billion dollars on this or that strategic project you can't refuse you have to comply so if there are more these uh, so-called oligarchs are more kind of like arms of the Kremlin uh, to some degree often they'll be acting in their own self-interest but sometimes they'll be either volunteering to do favors for the Kremlin or they'll be acting on orders of the Kremlin because it's how the system has existed and they've done very nicely out of it while everything was stable. They'd uh, made, got 
fabulously wealthy were able to retain their wealth uh, as long as they stayed on the right side of Putin's Kremlin and, and carried out tasks for him whenever necessary or whenever asked to. But uh, Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine has completely overturned that apple cart. The system has been completely disrupted. All the kind of uh, influence networks that some of these individuals had built in the West have now been completely torn up and uprooted. Uh, you know, the international status is completely damaged. And, you know, um, and Putin really, as president of Russia, served the function of being the guarantor of stability for this system in which this kind of well-connected group of insiders uh, had fabulous wealth and were able to use that wealth to win friends and influence people in the West and establish influence for Russia in the West too. And that's been completely overturned. So so rather than, I think, some of these individual oligarchs coming to Putin and, and raising the riot act, um, which is impossible because they'll just get sent to jail, it's, it's more a question of systemic backlash. There will be systemic uh, uh, kind of uh, stuff going on that we, we see even in the in the peace talks and the fact that they're even happening, which will rein Putin in and perhaps uh, someday seek to replace him. And it won't be an individual, it'll be more, more, perhaps more systemic within a younger group of Silovaki, the, the security services who are progressive and see the need for Russia to remain integrated with the West. We've seen some of the oligarchs, the business tycoons whose interests are vitally intertwined with the Russian state and to some degree the security services, which the UK Parliament's Security and Intelligence Committee pointed out that very often Russian business and the intelligence services are closely intertwined. We've seen them mm -hmm. speak out. Uh, Oleg Deripaska said as a result of the sanctions, the crisis in Russia is going to be three times worse than the economic crisis of 1998. Uh, Vladimir Petanin, another Russian tycoon, has called on Russia to refrain from confiscating the assets of foreign businesses because he said that would take us back to not just 98 or 91 but back to 1917 in, in terms of our international <sighs> reputation so um, you know there has been some outcry going on and I think there are efforts underway to try and put a lid on this but it's very very delicate. You use the word, uh, which comes up in your book so prominently and is, is key to understanding Putin and his people, Siloviki. Talk to us about who who is that? Who is that category of people and what role did they play in Putin's rise to power? So the Siloviki, um, basically that's a group of, of security service uh, men. That in the direct translation is the men of force. So these will be either ex-security or current security service people or men from the military. Um, Putin came to power very much as part of that group. Um, sort of what I was trying to trace in my book was really what happened to the security services at the time of the Soviet fall. Had they been completely obliterated as was was had been widely believed or were they able to remain as a force behind the scenes in the shadows that was sort of quietly regrouping which I think to, to some degree was the case I mean it was part accident that Putin came to power but in some ways it wasn't an accident that the Yeltsin family when they were in trouble after the financial crisis of 98 and when they were 
facing, some of their members were facing prosecution over corruption scandal. It's not an accident that they turned to members of the Sila Viki in order to ensure a stable transfer of power because this was a group that had remained in the background that even since the, the Soviet collapse, they tried to preserve their networks. In, in Putin's case, you could see very, very clearly that, uh, you know, he was deputy to a rising star of Russia's young democracy then, the mayor of St. Petersburg, Anatoly Sobchak. Uh, but Putin was representative of this kind of group of Sidoviki. He would, he, he and his group of ex-KGB officers who he'd worked with when St. Petersburg was still Leningrad, very much kind of controlled the city's economy behind the scenes. One of his closest allies was head of the Federal Security Services, the successor agency to the KGB. And they basically carved up the city's strategic cash flows between themselves. And this is a kind of a model that then Putin took to the whole of Russia when he became president. And the story of how he got there is probably too complicated to go into now. But it's, it's really an extraordinary story. And, and, and I think that a lot of people, observers, maybe even casual ones, but even maybe some people who study this closely, miss the extent to which those security services, those KGB men, played such a role in his rise. But also, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I mean, it was the, the KGB in setting up networks initially as the Soviet Union is collapsing that become the system of money laundering and of hiding assets and of this kind of this engine of wealth. I mean, this is all set up to some degree by the security services, even before the oligarchs are oligarchs. Yeah, that's true. Um, I guess uh, certainly, you know, like now, uh, the KGB or the security services were never monolithic. Uh, they weren't, there were many different factions within them. And in the KGB, for instance, uh, there was the foreign intelligence directorate, the first main directorate, who was seen really as the most uh, progressive. And because they'd been able to travel widely, they could see that the Soviet economy, the economic system was failing, that the planned economy was never going to be able to compete with the Western world, that they were falling behind technologically and militarily. And the only really way, the only way to, to compete was to reform and to make the transition to a market economy. And it was many of these foreign intelligence operatives who were sort of, first of all, helping set up institutes which housed the, the young reformers plotting this move. Some of them were actually foreign intelligence operatives themselves. There was one uh, institute in particular, the Institute for World Economy in, in Moscow, which was at one point headed by Yevgeny Primakov, who then became Russia's uh, foreign intelligence spymaster. And, um, you know, and they were really trying to understand how to make the transition because they knew the Soviet economy just, just wasn't working. Um, so I think they tried to do it in a controlled way way this to have this move to the market in a controlled way but uh, I think once they open the lid on on some free trade the rush to riches became uncontrollable and indeed some of the KGB were, were sort of moving stuff to their own pockets and then to keep their intelligence networks functioning themselves and there was these 
kind of documents that were uncovered uh, after President Boris Yeltsin uh, became president after the the, the August ninety one putsch, uh, uh, when he was trying to investigate what happened to the Soviet, the fabled Soviet wealth, and a, a lot of this wealth had been transported out uh, in the form of commodities, and they'd gone out as commodities experts, but mainly to firms controlled by the KGB, who would keep the vast difference between the Soviet price and the world market price. And during Soviet times, uh, this had been a mechanism for funding influence operations for the KGB. But uh, as the Soviet collapse uh, sped, uh, it became a mechanism for, yes, a little bit for me and a little bit for uh, preserving our strategic networks. And they could do that because there was no oversight over the process and, and no transparency at all. And it became a model on which we could see Putin operating too, because in St. Petersburg, uh, he, you know, he faced a lot of scrutiny for this uh, infamous oil for food deal, in which in '92 uh, St. Petersburg had run out of food completely, um, because the prices had been liberalized in the move to the market economy, and basically the supply chains had, had all broken down. Uh, so Putin was tasked with uh, deciding this issue, and he kept, they came up with this scheme that they were going to barter uh, commodities in exchange for imports of food. Putin handed out licenses and export quotas to some crony companies, uh, which ended up sort of running away with the proceeds of these deals and not delivering any of the food imports. And the West had always seen this through the lens purely of kleptocracy, that here was Putin lining the pockets of his friends. But actually, when I spoke to a former KGB officer about this who'd worked with Putin on the schemes, he said, look, it was more strategic than that, that we needed to create uh, slush funds in order to kind of, one, keep imports of infrastructure coming into the city and, and also to preserve intelligence networks because many of the companies that Putin was handing out licenses to had been sort of had connections to the KGB during the Soviet past or they'd been involved in these type of uh, influence operations in the past. And, uh, you know, and this was a time in 92 when Russia had pronounced itself bankrupt, it had taken on all the debts of the Soviet Union, uh, but essentially said, we can't pay them. So any official bank accounts abroad were frozen. There was a debt moratorium and you couldn't easily make these type of payments to pay for infrastructure or pay off debts to these so-called friendly firms which had been involved in funding influence operations in the past. And this was one of the mechanisms like through this barter scheme that, that Putin cooked up and which was also then implemented on a federal level through which they kind of basically kept these uh, networks running. Um, um, and again, this is a model that then Putin applied on a much broader scale when he became president. You know, and as you describe it, it makes it makes so much sense that an, an organization like the KGB, which has this foreign intelligence arm, that's its job is to go out, it's to try to understand the world as best it can, to bring that back for decision makers, would have this sense of what was going on in the Soviet economy, what was failing, what was going to work, what wasn't, and, and would be really well positioned to try and at least give it a go to make it work. And it strikes me as such a dichotomy to where we find Putin now, where what I'm thinking of is when I, when I talk to U.S. officials and intelligence officials, they describe his inner circle around him as vanishingly small. 
down to a couple of people, maybe, you know, Alexander Bortnikov, the head of the FSB, and Sergei Shoigu, his minister of defense. And it just seems it's such a contrast to this idea of how when things were getting set up, they had all of the benefit of this expertise and contacts and networks. And it's almost like you see somehow like this bubble just getting tighter and tighter around Putin. Do, do you see it that way or is that a misreading to you? Think? No, I think that's completely correct. And it's a res- direct result of him being so long in, in power. Um, I just think he's he's come to sort of trust uh, less and less uh, sort of this wider circle of advisors. It's also a result of the pandemic uh, in which uh, Putin has been incredibly isolated. Uh, I've heard sort of even one of the major Silovik uh, complained to, to somebody quite recently that he'd had to quarantine for two weeks before he managed to get to see Putin. So his his circle wow. of advisors has, has really narrowed. And I think it's narrowed also as his perception of the world has hardened. You know, this, this worldview in which the West is the enemy and the US is trying to encircle and undermine his regime uh, has hardened. He's come to trust less and less the technocrat members of, of, his, of the regime and They've had less and less access to him because they're seen as perhaps having perhaps dual interests, and maybe he won't trust them as as much as this kind of very hardline, hardcore circle. And it certainly seems to be the case that uh, the decision to invade Ukraine was not widely discussed; that it was indeed taken by this very small coterie of, of hardliners. Uh, none the least, I think, is Nikolai Patrushev, the head of the Security Council, who at that infamous meeting of, of more than two weeks ago now was almost telling Putin what to think. He was the most confident person in the room. Putin looked a bit nervous actually when he was speaking to him. Um, mm. Patrushev was was telling him that the then very much only simmering conflict over the separatist republics of Donetsk and Lugansk had been organized by the US, that the Ukrainian population didn't want it. They'd been forced and frightened down this path. And uh, the US was seeking to uh, destroy Russia. And our task is to preserve our sovereignty and and, and territorial integrity. And um, Putin looked kind of nervous when Patrushev is telling him all of this. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, I think he's very, his views have been very much now completely dominated by this hardline group. And we're seeing that in the ter- in the results of, of what's going on now. And it's almost like, um, as, as well, I guess Putin is, is heading to for 70 this year, he'll be 70 in October. Um, and I don't know, is, is, is this, we don't, it's almost, uh, one source told me, one person who used to be close to him said it's almost as if he's trying to relive his Soviet youth where he <laughs> thinks it's a good idea to, to ride into another country on, on tanks. And it's been, seems to have been misguided. Do you think that this, this close network of, of, advisors or however you want to think of them, this this small number of people around him who it sounds like are, are it sounds like are filling him his head with either disinformation or their understanding of reality is very, very flawed. And that was one of the key components I know of US and British intelligence assessments was that the people around Putin are not telling him the truth. Do you think he trusts them? I mean, trust is a strange word maybe here. I mean, does he he clearly seems to rely on them, but I, how does he view them in terms of the way we think of, you know, 
close advisors to President Biden or to Boris Johnson, is it the same kind of relationship, do you think, that he has with his people and you know whoever they may be now? You know, that's a very difficult assessment to make, of course. But, um, you know, I think if we if we look at the trajectory of Putin's time in power and the various nefarious acts that have gone on on the on route to accumulating so much power, I mean, just just one example, the takeover of uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky's UKIS oil major, which has been said in international courts to be an expropriation of property. He He's been bound ever closer to this hardline group. They share each other the secrets. They know what uh, kind of infringements of international law or other laws have been undertaken according in, on the way to acquiring so much power. So they're almost kind of bound together very very tightly now because they i mean they know things they know about what what what's what what's been going on so i think he will trust them to a certain degree but then putin as a kgb officer will also ultimately trust no one uh and I think when you've been so long in power for 20 years, uh, trusting your own instincts is also a, a dangerous thing because you acquire hubris, you think you're untouchable, and you have to look at the way that Putin sometimes speaks about other Western leaders with a large degree of disdain because he's outlasted them all by now. So I think to, to a large degree, perhaps some of this, uh, what we've been seeing in the last couple of weeks is, is due to his hubris, his belief that he's invincible and so maybe he and he with the fact that he was told what he wanted to believe and and clearly he has believed uh, this uh, line that uh, the Ukrainian population has been some way subjugated because it wasn't something that he believed in 2014 in 2014 there were also 150,000 Russian troops amassed at the Ukrainian border uh, but Putin then satisfied himself with just annexing Crimea because that was seen as something that, although it was a, a kind of in breach of international law, uh, you know, he could do so without almost firing a shot. Uh, you know, they had the referendum, there was a large Russian speaking majority there, which was uh, ultimately in favor of joining the Russian Federation. But he knew then, and he was dissuaded by a broader group of advisors then, that one, if he he were to invade Ukraine, if he were to send these 150,000 troops over the border, that he would face a severe economic reaction from the West, uh, and that he wouldn't have the support of the Ukrainian population. But as his time in power has gone on, it's it's clear that one, he's not getting that that same type of advice anymore, and and two, he's become he's got begun to believe his own Kool Aid, and I think that's been reinforced by the total Kremlin control over the media. So when he turns on TV, he hears the same thing as uh, Nikolai Patrushev or another type that another of that type of advisor has been telling him. He, he will see these, these kind of ideas of Western plots against Russia, the Nazis running Ukraine, even though the president is Jewish. And it just becomes this network of reinforcement. We know a lot about uh, the men, uh, I gather they're almost exclusively men, who have become <laughs> incredibly wealthy uh, under Putin and under the current system. What do we know about Putin's money? I mean, I've, I've, I've seen people speculate and say he could be one of the richest people on the planet. Um, what, what do you know about his own wealth and how he enriched himself in Russia? 
when the U.S. handed down its first set of sanctions following the annexation of Crimea, I spoke to uh, Vladimir Yokunin, who was one of uh, Putin's closest allies from the KGB in St. Petersburg, uh, and we were talking specifically about how the U.S. Treasury had said that Putin may be able to access cash stored in Gunvor, the oil trader owned by one of his close allies, Gennady Timchenko, and Yokunin said, ha, Putin can access the cash of all of Russia. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> he has the PIN number to the ATM. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's to some degree true because that's, that's the system. When you have uh, basically kind of taken control of the country's legal system, when uh, your uh, law enforcers and security service agents can essentially go and, and terror, terror, terrorize any businessman or kind of, or, or when the Kremlin oligarchs, the Russian billionaires, uh, basically owe uh, their fortunes to staying on the, the good side of the Kremlin, they all have to share their wealth with the Kremlin. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, there's the tycoon who says, yeah, if you get a call from the Kremlin uh, saying you have to spend $1 billion or $2 billion on this or that strategic project, you have to comply. So in some ways, uh, you know, Putin does own the whole of the Russian economy because he can call any of these billionaires up saying, hand over some cash. Um, I think we saw uh, some element of that too in the Panama Papers revelations when you could see, uh, you know, some of the Russian billionaires like paying quite a lot of money into offshore companies controlled by Putin's uh, best friend from his childhood, uh, Sergei Roldugin, who was a cellist and certainly not a businessman at all. And why he had anything to do with a network of offshore companies through which $2 billion had run was a, a question. But there were Russian billionaires, Suleiman Karimov, uh, Arkady Rotenberg, who were making payments into these cash networks. So, I mean, it's it's like a multi-level system. You have the billionaires who may act as proxies for the Kremlin, for Putin. They may uh, like contribute to strategic projects for the Kremlin. And then there are those who are closer to Putin, like, first of all, Gennady Timchenko, who the U.S. Treasury singled out as as his, his gunvolt oil traders as as Putin may uh, have a stake in this gun for oil trader and then you get even closer down to Sergei Roldugin his childhood friend the cellist the ch- cellist who won a uh, close Putin ally told me was was essentially had been Putin's golden parachute and until probably this all this this network of companies have been exposed in the Panama Papers uh, and then you will have uh, sort of other friends and that's sort of there's a but I, th- I think one when one is exposed, then then Putin will find somebody else to to shift the money to. But I think there's I'm sure there's a there's a broader strategic network of of so-called holders of Putin's cash. But that's whether that's his personally or for broader strategic purposes is is a question. And and there are all these billionaires will be willing to chip in to pay for private jets, for yachts, for Putin or, or whatever. And then the I think the great uh, mystery is, is you know, who's holding the secret bank accounts now, if if there are any. Um, we know about Roald Dugan, we know about Tim Chinko, but they've been exposed, so there must be others. Were you surprised by the sanctions that were levied, and particularly things like the central bank sanctions? Uh, and do you think that they are working in the sense that presumably they are designed to, in, to some significant degree, you know, 
either dismantle Putin's wealth or or cut off his access to a large portion of it. Um, I think the central bank sanctions, you know, I, everyone has been surprised by them. I think the Moscow elite were completely taken aback. I mean, there had been talk before uh, from the U.S. Uh, community about how the U.S. could go ahead and sanction the biggest state banks, Spare Bank and BTB, in case of war. But nobody in their wildest dreams even imagined that they could go ahead and, and sanction the central bank in the way that it has done. Because if they had, they wouldn't have kept so much money, $300 billion worth open to, to being frozen in the way that they did. Um, and I think rather than having a, an impact on Putin's personal wealth, this is very important from a systemic point of view, uh, because this is the action that's going to have the biggest impact on the Russian economy. The central bank doesn't have access anymore to its war chest that it had been building up in cases of situations like this, so which it could use to bail out banks, bail out Russian companies in case of, you know, uh, problems paying off foreign debts and which it could use also to prop up the ruble. Uh, it doesn't have access to that cash anymore. So the ruble convertibility as a result is now over. There's a fixed exchange rate set by the central bank. Uh, the central bank is sharply raised interest rates, which means that further down the line, companies are going to go bankrupt because they're not able to access financing, which again, further down the line will lead to big consequences for Putin because people will be out of work. Did his rise, I mean, I, I think of him and, and a lot, well, I should say uh, more to the point, a lot of officials who I've talked to and people like you who've studied him closely always talk about him as he was an intelligence officer. And it's kind of once an intelligence officer, always an intelligence officer. And it's, it's a way that he views and frames the world. And there is clearly this sense of the grandeur of Russia, the greater history of Russia, his place in it. Um, where does wealth play a role, do you think, in his ambition? I mean, obviously, he has probably become fabulously wealthy, but he doesn't strike me as somebody who is inherently, inherently acquisitive. I mean, he seems to have a grand sweep and a sense of things that is something that transcends wealth. And I guess it just makes me wonder, you know, it does locking up his money, is that really going to persuade him? But what, what do you think? I mean, is he, has he become just accustomed to being fabulously wealthy? Is it that important to him? Yeah, I think for him, uh, the accoutrements of power, of course, he likes them. He's gotten used to them. He likes to have a palace and a fancy swimming pool. But, you know, a accumulating so much wealth it, it's much more important than these sort of you know just having possessions and and that's probably a mistake that that the the west had in in viewing uh the russian kleptocracy uh be previously because uh for them having uh, enormous amounts of wealth at uh, putin's command was was about uh being able to project power and first of all the takeover of the russian economy wasn't just about lining his and his cronies' pockets. It was about being able to maintain control of the country's politics, that they could take control of the strategic cash flow so that they could then deploy them to kind of make sure regional elections went the Kremlin's way, to pay for state propaganda. And then once you accumulate a critical mass of power at home, you can then begin to deploy that type of wealth uh, through your proxies, through these offshore companies, through the, the Yeltsin era billionaires in order to begin to undermine your rival 
struggles in the West, uh, the US, which is for one, which is still seen as the main adversary, and Europe to try and kind of sow and, and sow discord and disrupt and divide uh, all the democracies in the West, uh, which you see as somehow still as your enemies through this kind of KGB lens that you want to disrupt the, the transatlantic alliance, you perhaps want to make sure that the UK leaves the EU, and it's certainly the case that we've seen Kremlin funding for far-left and far-right parties across Europe, uh, and then culminating with the, the kind of the interference in the US election in 2016. So it's the, all this money, it, it's, uh, there's only so many tens of billions of dollars that you can spend on mansions and yachts and, and no fancy clothes, uh, but it, it's, 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 about, it's an instrument of power. What do we know about Putin's immediate family and particularly his children? Um, yes, actually, that's a good question. Um, so, I mean, as last we knew, his daughter Maria lives in Holland. Uh, so, you know, I'd be very curious to know uh, what's going on with her now. Has perhaps she been forced to return to Moscow? We don't know. Uh, his other daughter, uh, Yekaterina, has uh, kind of acquired a certain amount of prominence in Moscow. She runs a, a scientific think tank uh, to which uh, Yeltsin-era billionaires and others make uh, large donations every now and then. Um, you know, I think probably she's quite well shielded, but I certainly wonder about Maria because she had been married to a Dutch businessman and was living in Europe. And is there some indication that she was living abroad because she wanted to get away from her father and didn't want to be part of his world? I have no idea. I don't know. Uh, um, but I mean, those were different days when well, yeah. the last I heard from her were different days when when uh, certainly even those closest to Putin were many of them were still accepted in Europe. But obviously that that's changed completely ever since Putin invaded Ukraine. So I'd be surprised if she was still in Holland and not sort of uh, in some Kremlin safe house in Moscow. <laughs> and do we know, does he go to great lengths to shield his privacy to make sure that people don't know a lot about his former wife or, or any other romantic interests he has, those kinds of things? Yeah, I think we've seen him uh, react very prickly whenever uh, anyone has reported on his daughters, for instance. I mean, that the first uh, reporting on his daughter, Yekaterina, uh, came, I think, in 2015, 2016, when she married uh, a very uh, rich Russian businessman who also happened to be the son of one of his best friends from St. Petersburg, and then began to acquire fabulous wealth himself through uh, acquiring a stake in a, the Russia's biggest petrochemicals giant, which I think he won for about $100, and it turned out to be worth several hundreds of millions of dollars. And I think the Russian journalist community, there had been like this great revival of Russian investigative journalism in which I think there are various leaks have been going on as well, but they were able to kind of dig into how the husband of Putin's daughter had acquired such fabulous wealth. But obviously that's all been completely overturned now too by this campaign in Ukraine in which journalists now face jail for even saying it's a war. And I don't think any of these journalists are even still in Russia. They had to leave even before the invasion because there was a big crackdown going on. So we've seen Putin react 
very, very sensitively uh, to this, but I think it, because uh, uh, of the reporting around Yekaterina, she has gained more prominence. She did even publicly attend the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum last oh. year, which is meant to be the big showcase for the Russian economy. She spoke at that. She's been acquiring a more public role, but very little is heard about Maria. Um, and we hear very little now about Putin's ex-wife uh, or any of his uh, other uh, alliances. Um, let's talk about you a little bit. Where, where did you grow up and how did you get into journalism? And then we'll then we'll come to how you started reporting on all of these people. But how did you uh, how did you get into the business? Uh, well, I grew up in the north of England uh, when I was finishing school. The Berlin Wall was uh, falling and I was sort of just fascinated by the whole process, these collapsing empires. I'd studied German at school. And then before I went to university, when I was deciding what to do, uh, you know, I went on a trip to Moscow and, and happened to be there in December 91 on New Year's Eve, uh, just as the Soviet Union was collapsing and wow. was on red square the last time that well the first time that the russian flag had been hoisted over the kremlin it was just an incredible experience that completely blew me away and i was fascinated and obsessed ever since so i studied russian and german at university and then uh you know moved to Moscow pretty much as soon as I graduated and ended up working at some English language newspapers and remained obsessed ever since. And did you always know that you wanted to write about Putin and these people around him? I mean, I mean, obviously not always, as soon as he came into power, I mean, but is there, had this been a long time uh, ambition to, to dig into him in this way? You know, it's it's it was it was something that really evolved. Um, I mean, I began in Moscow as a reporter for the Moscow Times, and uh, then I worked for Business Week, and then I moved back to the Moscow Times. And at the Moscow Times, I really covered in great depth the the Russian state takeover of Mikhail Khodorkovsky's UKIS, and I really followed it very closely. And initially, my great ambition was to write a book about the Russian state takeover of UKIS and how this had been a big turning point for the entire Russian economy. And I was about to embark on that project when I got very lucky and was offered a job to work at the Financial Times uh, as the Moscow correspondent there. So that book project kind of went out of the window because I, I threw all my kind of energies into reporting for the FT. Uh, and then uh, after I kind of was coming to the end of my stint at the FT, um, my editors in London wanted me to move back to London, become an all-round FT corporate reporter and write about private equity, which I'm sure was a good thing. Um, but I really, you know, I felt that I'd had such a position of privilege at the FT in Moscow and had been able to kind of acquire so many good contacts and senior businessmen, senior government officials that it seemed a waste to just drop it and move on to something else. And I felt there were still so many questions that were unanswered about Putin's rise to power and sort of what had happened to the security services at the time of the Soviet fall that I really wanted to delve into this and I think probably initially too the book was pitched as 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 Putin's people i.e. who are the new oligarchs of Putin's Russia who has replaced the the Yeltsin era ones but it became more a quest of well, Putin and, and sort of this this KGB mindset which really seemed to be shaping uh, so many of his actions as president. 
And it makes me think, too, about, you know, when we talk about Putin's people, there's just this coterie around him, right? But there is the broader, there are the people of Russia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and it's hard to imagine, at least for me, and maybe you have other thoughts on this, you know, Putin being, you know, ousted from power. I mean, I think it would be, it could be quite challenging, maybe systemically more to your point earlier in the conversation, things just become impossible for him and he has to step aside. But what, what does the future for the Russian people look like without Vladimir Putin in charge? Well, at the moment, the future of the Russian people does look very bleak, uh, given that they can't travel uh, to the West anymore, or all these airlines have, have closed down. Uh, I think for now, the Moscow, most of the Moscow shops still have their stocks. Uh, so things apart from the elite kind of Western boutiques are, are still ticking over. Uh, you can't go shopping at Ikea, of course, anymore. Um, but all these uh, comforts that the Russians have enjoyed uh, over most of Putin's presidency have are, have disappeared or will disappear soon. So, you know, the longer the war continues, the greater the impact will be on the economy. As we've seen from the central bank sanctions, it could mean bankruptcies, people becoming unemployed. They won't be able to travel and have their nice holidays in the West anymore. And it's really a, a, a great tragedy. And also for the businessmen who have spent 30 years building these businesses, building ties in the West to see that all kind of also whisked away from them and, and destroyed overnight. It's, you know, obviously it's nothing compared to the pulverizing of, of the Ukrainian cities and the huge flows of, of refugees, but it, it's still a, an enormous tragedy for Russia. So, I mean, I guess we, we have to wait and see what's going to happen, but surely there will be some kind of, uh, you know, if, if Putin wants to continue to engage in these sort of Soviet era dreams of invading other countries, then uh, at some point you would expect uh, someone to move to replace him. And that may be from a more, again, we will see the more progressive Siliviki show their face because they will want to continue to integrate with the West. But I guess we just have to wait to see. But then again, you know, I can say that um, we could be faced with a a worse uh, situation. We don't know. But in general, then Russian history, there are all, the pendulum always swings to one extreme or the other. So we would have to hope yeah. it would be a more pro-Western leader. And just as a final thought, do you think Putin has ambitions after Ukraine for invading other countries, attacking other countries? I guess, well, that would depend on what happens now in Ukraine, uh, whether the Western uh, resolve and resistance uh, continues and whether President Zelensky is also able to continue to resist. Perhaps if uh, this accommodation can be reached, which of course will be painful for Zelensky, uh, for Crimea to be recognized as Russian and Donetsk and Lugansk to be quietly carved out is if that's something that's acceptable perhaps this means that this entire campaign can can stop there at least we can only hope so uh well it is our tradition on chatter for our very very last question for the guest to be a pre-written selection that i pull out of the chatter box which i have here in my hand (laughs) this is a little bit of just a uh designed to be off topic maybe it'll be on topic but i'm going to pull this out and i'm going to ask you uh, this is a good one. This, of course, if you have time to be doing this right now, uh, recommend any recent book you've read, podcast you've listened to, or TV show that you've watched. Is there anything that is just 
compelled you or obsessed you that you would recommend to our listeners? Um, I think I would definitely say uh, the first thing that came to mind was Fiona Hill's uh, There's Nothing for You Here. I think it was a wonderful book and it really sort of, you know, helped describe uh, why it is that the the US and the the UK has been sort of facing the, the situation that it has about all these sort of economies and local populations which have been left by the wayside and really helps explain why we've been facing this rising tide of, of populist leaders. It really was very essential reading. Yeah. Well, your book, Putin's People, is also essential reading. You are a tremendous explainer. You make things so clear. It's a terrific story. I hope everyone will read it. And um, Catherine Belton, again, thank you so much for your work and thank you for taking time to talk with us about this man who I think is probably, for better or for worse, the most interesting person on the planet right now that we all have so many questions about. So thank you again for being here. Thanks so much for chatting. Thanks. It's been really interesting. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.